let freedom ring let freedom ring let freedom ring let freedom ring this is under the tree a seminar on freedom with bill ayers Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. I deeply appreciate Tom, musician, singer, songwriter, actor, and political activist. From Rage Against the Machine to The Night Watchman, Audio Slave, and the supergroup Prophets of Rage, Tom's consistent soundtrack, day by day and year after year, is a heartfelt and multi-layered cry for freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you under the tree for our seminar on freedom. We breathe deeply and count ourselves active members of an energetic and insurgent community. We continue to ask ourselves, and we ask you, where in the world are we, and where are we in the world? How can we best name this social, political, historic moment? What is to be done? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We open each episode with a poem, our by now familiar practice. It's a time of reflection, our moment of Zen. Today's poem is a word on statistics by the Nobel laureate Wisława Szymborska from Poland, and it's read by our regular contributor, Light Eile. Out of every hundred people, those who always know better, 52. Unsure of every step, almost all the rest. Ready to help if it doesn't take long, 49. Always good, because they cannot be otherwise, four, well, maybe five. Able to admire without envy, 18. Led to error by youth, which passes, 60, plus or minus. Those not to be messed with, 4 and 40. Living in constant fear of someone or something, 77. Capable of happiness, 20-some-odd at most. Harmless alone, turning savage in crowds, more than half, for sure. Cruel, when forced by circumstances, it's better not to know, not even approximately. Wise in hindsight, not many more than wise in foresight. Getting nothing out of life except things, 30, though I would like to be wrong. Balled up in pain, and without a flashlight in the dark, 83 sooner or later. Those who are just, quite a few, 35. But if it takes an effort to understand, 3. Worthy of empathy, 99. Mortal, 100 out of 100, a figure that has never varied yet. A word on statistics. Wow, there's a lot to feel and take in there. Thank you, Vislava Shimborska, and thank you, Light Ili, for a beautiful reading. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to shake free from whatever frenzied or frantic editor slash critic is perched upon your shoulder, commenting disapprovingly on your every sentence, and write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of the underground and the nowhere of utopia. So this is a moment to put words on the page as fast as your hand will move, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Whenever you fill out an official form, you're asked certain predictable questions, name, date of birth, address, gender, and so on. Make a list of five to ten items that might typically appear on your statistical profile. Now, pause the podcast and write an autobiographical sketch that says something of fundamental importance about yourself that was entirely missed by the facts and the figures. Okay, start writing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. 
also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. In the very first episode of this podcast, I spoke about how the idea of a seminar provided us with a vast metaphor, offering us infinite roads to travel and pathways to pursue. Poems and free rights, of course, language arts and current events, history and geography, and much, much more. Today, we'll get to something we've been missing up until now, the wide and wonderful world of mathematics. Of course, math is math, right? I mean, two plus two equals four every time. Well, no, not quite. Everything we humans produce is created in context, and it's always partial, contingent, and contested. Two plus two might equal four a lot of the time, but repeating that stuttering cliche neither explains nor justifies the manipulation, deception, damage, and fraud, as well as the beauty and power that flies at us from every direction in the name of facts and figures, the mantle of math. Numbers don't express absolute truths. They can easily hide injustices and conceal reality. And higher-level math is often precisely about how we decide what counts, and then being sure our decision-making is transparent, open to examination and critique. I'm reminded of Emerson. Their every tooth is not quite true, he wrote. Their two is not the real two, therefore not the real four, so that every word they say chagrins us, and we know not where to begin to set them right. In the world of public education and the recurring debates around school change, the phrase data-driven reform is a commonplace, usually deployed as a weapon that uses high-stakes standardized tests as its ammunition its proxy for intelligence. It's really a terrible fraud. What we really need are schools and classrooms that are student-driven, teacher and community-built, and data-informed. To get there, we need students, teachers, families, and community members who are sharp and informed and fierce in their criticism, and also who can name the system as it is, posit real alternatives, and rise up to fight for the schools we deserve and a society fit for all children. Everyone should become better informed and know the truth about high-stakes standardized tests. Part of that truth is that big corporations profit from them, a major reason we're caught up in the testing regime. And further, that these tests have nothing to do with real teaching or authentic learning. They don't help teachers teach, they don't help parents know how their kids are doing, and they don't help students learn. They even fail at their stated purpose, revealing the intelligence, talent, effort, or aptitude of students. The obsession with testing is lazy, wrong-headed, and immoral, start to finish. Testing has been the common cudgel in the hands of the powerful, a kind of modern and scientized eugenics device but it has unleashed a forceful opposition as well. Parents electing to have their children skip the tests, stay home or sit in the auditorium during test time. Teachers unions and associations, a growing number of families and entire communities have concluded that the tests are expensive and disruptive, but have no authentic educational benefit. And many folks are becoming more sophisticated in analyzing the relative value of high stakes standardized testing, as well as the underpinnings of the entire obsession. One of the clearest objections is that the weight placed on certain standardized measures, combined with the huge consequences, the high stakes, makes gaming the system, that is, fudging and cheating, inevitable. This explains in part why cheating scandals on student standardized tests are rampant across the land and why authorities are barking up the wrong tree whenever they hire law enforcement to get to the bottom of things and secure the tests at all cost. Every week, somewhere in America, another scandal. And the root problem is not security. It's giving educators a hefty incentive to do the wrong thing. The fraud is further illuminated by Goodhart's Law, named after the British economist Charles Goodhart, or the similar but different uncertainty principle at the heart of quantum physics. Goodhart's Law says this, 
a performance metric is only useful as a performance metric as long as it isn't used as a performance metric. Paradoxical, right? Let me say it again. A performance metric is only useful as a performance metric as long as it isn't used as a performance metric. In other words, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. What that means is that if you want to build a good high school, for example, and you announce that, say, 100% college attendance is the indicator of whether you've built that desired good high school, people will work frantically and single-mindedly toward that designated target, and it might even be achieved, but often to the detriment of that larger goal, that is, the school could still be terrible. 100% of its graduates could indeed go to college, the performance metric, because every effort was bent in that single direction. But teachers and administrators glossed over an anemic curriculum, autocratic and rote teaching, a massive push-out rate, and a sketchy list of what counts as college. An astronomical college failure. That's not good. The target became the goal, and the larger universe remained and became more miserable. The whole modern testing regime distorts life for children and families and teachers. It reflects and reinforces the metaphor, language, and practices of education as a product to be bought and sold at the marketplace, as opposed to education as a universal human right and a site of intellectual freedom, moral reflection, courage, and ethical action. Note as well that the testing machine can test only specific things, and those certain testable things then become glorified as the things most useful. The tail once again is wagging the dog. Albert Einstein famously noted that not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Think, for example, about love, joy, justice, solidarity, beauty, kindness, compassion, commitment, peace, effort, interest, engagement, awareness, connectedness, happiness, joy, sense of humor, relevance, honesty, self-confidence, respect for others. I could keep going, but I'll stop there. All of this is prelude to our conversation today with Carrie Coca, an assistant professor of mathematics education at the University of Pittsburgh and one of the most thoughtful people working today to rescue math from its many myths and misunderstandings that seem to cling to it like a tangle of ugly barnacles. She studies, organizes, and advocates for social justice mathematics, and we're going to get into all of that and dig into what it means. Welcome to Under the Tree, Carrie. Hi, thank you so much. It's really my pleasure and my honor to be here with you today. It's terrific to see you. Um, I guess I want to start, I mean, this is our first time jumping into the world of mathematics, which we've not done before in, in this podcast. But I've always wanted to, and I'm just absolutely delighted that you're willing to join us because I know you're a person who not only is a mathematics educator and a math teacher, but someone who's thought deeply about math and its relationship to justice, to, to uh, liberation, to freedom. So I guess I want to start by, by simply um, asking you something that occurs to me because it happens to me all the time. You're at a social gathering and somebody says casually, what do you do? And you say, I'm a math educator. What's the reaction? What do people, what do people say? Sometimes people say, oh, I was horrible at math or I hated math. Oh, we all hated math, didn't we? And they laugh. Um, or that's the confession. <laughs> that's the confession part, right? Right. Which would never be socially acceptable to say, oh, we all hate books. We hate yeah. reading, right. you know, and, and my heart breaks when people say that because really it's because of the ways that we have been teaching mathematics in schools, right? This very rote didactic mad minute. You have to finish all the problems really quickly. Um, that isn't really conducive to student learning. And it's, the research shows that that isn't really how we learn mathematics. Um, so I get that a lot. I get a lot of um, math 
phobia responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also get the responses that indicate that they believe that uh, mathematics ability, so-called ability, is some type of proxy for intelligence, uh-huh. right? Right? Like, oh, wow, you're a math teacher. That's amazing. You must be um, so smart. Right. Now, see, right. I'm so glad I didn't say that to start off because I was about <laughs> to fall into I was about to fall into both traps. I was going to confess my shame at being terrible at math or at, at having developed math phobia fairly young, and then I was going to say, "You must be so smart." So, thank you for stopping me on both of those. That was good. Um, but it's, it is true, isn't it, that people in our culture um, in America, people are. Math is kind of held up as a, as you say, a proxy for intelligence. Say more about that. Well, I think that it's on purpose, right? It's the insidious nature of the myth of meritocracy to say this is a subject that is so-called taught in this objective way. And those who are able to do well in the dominant measures that we measure mathematics you know, oh, it was fair, and the people who did well, they must be somehow smarter, right? And it contributes to tracking, right? Mathematics is one of the most heavily tracked subjects. Um, it's the gatekeeping that happens, right, to try to prevent people from having opportunities in education. What do you mean gatekeeping? How does that work? So in terms of standardized testing, right, Um, in order to be able to test into certain classes or to specialized high schools. You know, I used to teach in New York City, so there are the specialized high schools, the Bronx Science, the Stuyvesant, that have those type of standardized tests. And then even all the way down to the elementary school, when we start breaking kids into reading groups Mm -hmm. and and math groups also, you know. So so it operates... To kind of keep people out of what, though? I mean, you say it's a gatekeeper. In what sense does it, I mean, does it keep people who aren't um, drawn into math or aren't taught well? Does it keep them from choosing other things to do? Or how does it, how does it keep the gate? Well, I think students who might have um, really great ideas in mathematics and in science, right? Someone could be the child who is going to grow up to uh, invent the cure for cancer, right? And and the way, I mean, we do have a very hierarchically structured school system. So in order for someone to climb that ladder to get to that pathway, to be that research scientist, um, certain classes are required in our education system. There are twelve. There are twelve years of required math in our typical elementary school, right? Twelve years, and you you, you said um, that there's something about the way we teach it. It's it's that that in itself is undermining of of a, a of an interest or a curiosity in math. Could you say more about that? I mean, is there a pedagogy of of social justice mathematics? Yeah, I mean there. I mean, I really like that question because I think a lot of times when we talk about social justice mathematics, we talk a lot about the content and we talk less about the how, about the pedagogy. And in mainstream math education research, there is a great deal of research that shows that the ways that we learn mathematics is actually through struggle and through doing problems together having students present, talking about the dilemmas that we're seeing, and not necessarily this mastery of, you know, the ways that all of us have been taught. The teacher does it on the board. We practice it. We have to do it the way that the teacher does it. And in other countries, so there's a a group of studies, they've done this multiple years, called the TIM studies. It's the Trends in Math and Science Studies. And they actually did video studies in different countries. And the countries with the higher achieving, and this is, again, based on, you know, a standardized test, um, higher achieving students actually engaged in mathematics that was about productive struggle. So in Japan, for instance, they would work on one big conceptual problem throughout the entire class period 
and students would come to the board, they would struggle, their peers would help them, um, and the teacher was more of a facilitator. And then at the end, they would come to the formula or the theorem that the teacher really wanted them to arrive at. So it was much more student-centered than the way we teach here. But is that, is that um, when you say one big problem, like what would a big problem be that you would work on for, for a whole period or a whole week? How would that, uh, what, give us an example. So one example could be um, looking at the Pythagorean theorem and trying to think about why that works. And there are different visual proofs that students can um, work on with manipulatives to think about why that works. Um, you, you lost me at the Pythagorean theorem, so maybe you could tell <laughs> us what that is. So, um, well, I actually recently um, realized that the Pythagorean theorem is, was actually uh, first found in India, um, but we call it the Pythagorean theorem, you know, in the Western world right. um, it's like 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 euclidean geometry exactly right? exactly yeah. but it's, it's not like know, nobody else figured out geometry but we attribute it to to the greeks right mm -hmm. and so you know it's the a squared plus b squared equals c squared so if you have your two legs of your right triangle and then your hypotenuse the longest side across from the 90 degree angle um and there are ways um to show that with an area model. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even thinking about um, looking at patterns of exponents, how do exponents work? And students look at the patterns to notice, oh, actually, if I have two to the third times two to the fifth, if I were to write that out, I would have my two times two times two, and then five more of them. Mm -hmm. which is really two to the eighth, mm -hmm. right? So they, they start to see that pattern that you're actually just adding those exponents, the three and the five. Okay. So, so <laughs> I know, I know you, you, you're teaching me and, and this is important, but now the next question that comes to my mind when you tell me that is a question that kids say to me all the time. And my grandchildren say to me, which is, how will I ever use this? Why is this important? Why is math? Well, I guess I'll start at the beginning. What is math and why is it important? And why do you think it's important that kids come at it in a certain way and become literate in it? What, what is it? I mean, I would say math is the study of patterns mm -hmm. and looking for patterns. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people who had the power to design the standards you know, the list of topics that students are required to learn. I would, you know, I would revise that list of topics <laughs> because there are, there are many topics that we don't necessarily use in our real life as often, like imaginary numbers, polynomial functions, um, polynomial division. Um, but I think the power of doing social justice mathematics is that all of those topics are relevant to the real world and useful in an instrumental way towards freedom, towards liberation. Say more. In what sense? So, so for instance, um, you know, I know you emailed me this question about big data and numbers, and I was listening to NPR this weekend, and they were talking about the COVID numbers in India, right? And so I just did some number crunching, literally just basic division. Um, and so, you know, the US population, we make up 4.2% of the world's population. Right. Right, but we make up 23.2% of the COVID-19 cases and 18.6% of the deaths, mm -hmm. right? And I think that People in the United States, I don't think that people in the United States realize how small of a proportion of the, the world's population we make up. I think you're right about that, <laughs> for sure. <clears throat> because we have a, an enlarged sense of ourselves, right? Right. Um, and so if you don't understand that basic numeracy, you don't understand how dire the situation is and that 
you know, really businesses have, have been kept open because of capitalism. So we choose capitalism over the health and well-being and literal lives of people living in the United States. You know, when, when people say, though, you brought us to COVID-19, when people say, now we've got this vaccine, and there, I have a lot of mixed feelings about, about the whole way it's, it's narrated in the media, um, as if this is, the, this is the magic bullet and that the social kind of responsibility that we should have been practicing all along now kind of doesn't matter, or so it seems. Like the big victory is we have a shot that we can take. And that, that bothers me on so many levels, including, as you say, kind of capitalism um, run amok. I mean, people are making bazillions on this rather than you know, thinking of it as a common good problem. But as soon as you bring up COVID-19, the other thing that comes to my mind is that people say, trust the scientists. And of course, I, that's well-meaning. I understand I'm in that camp, kind of. But I actually get nervous when people say, trust the scientists or trust the science, as if it's some objective thing out there that's just true without any, um, without any history or context or so does that make you does that make you as crazy as me or maybe probably not as crazy but i mean trust the scientists trust the mathematicians i worry that we're all passive in the face of the scientists and the mathematicians and we shouldn't be yeah i mean especially when we think about the history in this country um especially what scientists in the united, in the united states have done to people of color Right. If we think about the Tuskegee experiment, if we think about forced sterilization, um, women who were enslaved, who were tortured and that was considered gynecological research. Right. Um, and so I think it makes complete sense to to be worried about the scientists. I guess I want to be skeptical and at the same time informed. And I feel like math phobia or science phobia or or being taught that you're stupid in math for your whole life i mean in some ways that disempowers you to be informed but skeptical you know you think about i'm thinking now about nuclear power you know uh, generating electricity trust the science wait a minute no i i don't want to i mean i want i want to be informed about energy and nuclear power, but I don't want to trust them to make the decisions for a lot of reasons, including, as you say, because capitalism has its own logic. Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the things that is a habit for me now, ever since I went to graduate school, that I think drives some of my friends and family members crazy, is that I'm always looking for, well, whose source are you citing? Like, let's look at multiple sources and multiple perspectives, and do we trust these sources? You know, people will say, oh, research says, and I'm like, what study was that? <laughs> what research? Right? right, because that's part of a habit now that, you know, to think about, well, do I believe this person? Do I believe their research design? Um, well, and, and research speaks with many tongues. I mean, you can't, there is no such thing as the research says, and. You know, for me, one example is, you know, I was at a high school where they would do, some young teachers were introducing a hip hop curriculum into the English um, classes and the principal was resisting. And he said, well, what research shows that this is worthwhile? And I said, well, what research shows that teaching Romeo and Juliet is worthwhile? And he said, don't be stupid. Okay, so he, he, said, he wants to cite the research when it's to his advantage, but he doesn't want to, you know, he wants to go with what he believes. So again, research is a many-tongued uh, monster. Um, but I worry, even beyond that, I worry that where we started, math phobia, and kind of feeling like it's a, it's a proxy for intelligence, don't people by about the third grade begin to learn that you can't you can't participate in certain discussion because you're not smart in math. I mean, there's certain, you're kind of a dumb math person and therefore you can't, um, you're, you're taught to kind of defer. I guess that's what I'm thinking. You think that's true? I think the ways in which 
we've traditionally taught mathematics, um, right? But there are other ways, if we think about using group work, complex instruction, some of the work of Joe Bowler, looking at how students work in groups um, so that they can, you know, like multiple viewpoints are valued and teachers will look at status issues in a group that happen. Um, I think about the work of um, Deborah Ball and Magdalene Lampert, where there's, there are these videos of their research of these elementary school students, you know, coming up with their own mathematical ideas and theorems. Um, but I think you're right, you know, by the time elementary school ro rolls around and then the later on you get, right, and I taught high school, so by the time kids get to high school, they certainly have ideas about who they think is smart, so-called smart or not smart in mathematics, that I really saw it as my job to dismantle those ideas. And how did you do that? Well, one of the things that I did was I, I used group work. Um, I had students who would take the lead. So when students presented, I would stand at the back and I would raise my hand <laughs> when I had a question and I had to wait to be called on. Um, we did a lot of performance assessments. So students had multiple ways to demonstrate their understanding. I, I taught at Vanguard High School and so we were part of the New York Performance Standards Consortium. Mm -hmm. And so the performance assessments also gave students another way to show their understanding. I know I read some things that you've written where you talk about the importance of, of teachers seeing their students, understanding their students. Is that a core principle of, of teaching, of the pedagogy of social justice mathematics? Knowing your students, finding I out mean, what they think, what they understand, what their questions are? Yes, I mean, I, I think that that's good pedagogy for any grade level, any subject that we have to know our students. Um, but especially when we think about social justice mathematics, because if we are investigating local social issues that are relevant to students' lives, we don't know if they're relevant to students' lives unless we ask them. And Rico Gutstein has done a lot of work um, where he actually asked students what they wanted to investigate the year before he taught them and then in the summer he designed curriculum to use with them um, when he taught them. So, but, but <clears throat> that, that's certainly a good example of listening to the students. But investigating the conditions of their lives, say statistically looking at hunger or looking at poverty or looking at patterns of employment, that's the content. But again, I'm interested in the ways in which you've innovated around around not just what's taught and, and what makes it social justice. So instead of doing, you know, baseball, um, which you can do all kinds of statistics with baseball, you might do neighborhood problems. But beyond that, what is what what makes it stand out as as a, a pedagogy of uh, that points toward justice? Well, I think one of the things building on the work of Paolo Freddi is that students are teachers and teachers are students. So that's part of why, like I said, you know, I would stand at the back of the room and I would be a student and I would raise my hand and I would w wait to be called on. And, um, you know, many times they chose not to call on me. Um, and I think also about, um, you know, the, the, the problems that we're um, solving by doing this type of pedagogy. And I think also about emotions. So thinking about math phobia, I mean, one of the teachers that I studied, she had her students um, reflect on how they felt about the issues that they were studying. And so one of my papers I talk about, I call it healing informed social justice mathematics. And I build on the work of Sean Jinwright in his radical healing, his healing informed engagement um, and then I also build on the work of um, an ecological approach to trauma-informed care where we're looking at systems and we're looking at community wellness rather than looking at as an individual who is harmed and needs to somehow be treated or pathologized. Um, 
Say more about that. I'm interested in that because uh, I'll tell you why I'm interested. Because I often think that we look at big social problems and we say, oh, we need to heal. And then what we're talking about is everybody needs a therapist. But really, when we're looking at systems of oppression, it's not that everybody needs a therapist. That might be nice. But they really need to stop the harm. I mean, you know, that would be <laughs> right. step one, right? I mean, I mean, so I'm just interested in that healing-informed um, pedagogy. I'm interested. In say, say a bit more. So um, the teacher that I studied, I mean, I think there are also a lot of tricky intricacies in, in the work. And so the teacher that I studied, she's a black woman. She was born and raised in the city that she taught. She taught predominantly students of color. And... So when she was talking about food insecurity or living in a food desert or struggling to make ends meet, these were issues that she was facing in her own life, as, as were most people in the Bay Area where I did my research, right? I mean, the cost of living was $3,500 a month for a one-bedroom. Um, and so I think the relationship that she had with her students and the, the deep... Um, embeddedness she had in her own community, I think was really important to that work. Um, but, you know, I think that um, one of the things that one of the young people said, there was a problem exploring two different playground areas, you know, a wealthy neighborhood and a, a not wealthy neighborhood. And one of the students, Daisy, she said, well, can we all just play together? Mm. Right. And so... I think that posing these type of questions, it just gives that spark to young people to think about the solutions. You know, I just, I really believe that young people are our future and are the ones who have the solutions. I mean, I'm just very inspired by the Black Panthers and the Young Lords who were high school and college students doing this organizing work, right? Um, and, and in my own teaching, um, the students that I taught and would bring to protests and rallies, um, you know, that fire that kids have in their belly, you know, it's like teachers just need to move out of the way a lot of times. A lot of times. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you tell kids, how do you, um, or how do you advocate that other teachers tell kids, you're not stupid in math, you're smart in math, you're naturally smart. How do you communicate that, I think, fundamental idea? I mean, you are not stupid, you're smart. And yet somehow from very early, we begin to teach kids that they're not smart. I mean, I was thinking about Linda, Linda Berry, you know, the, the great cartoonist. And she says in her book, Syllabus, she says by the third grade, every, most kids believe that they're not good at art. And they'll tell you, I can't draw. And, and isn't it true of math as well by about the third grade people? So how do, you, how do you disrupt that? How do you interrupt that and say, no, you are smart. And it sounds like that one example you were just giving of, of the kid in San Francisco, it, the, the subtext was you're smart in math. You, you have ideas. Well, I think that the first thing is that we need to completely change the way we think of this definition of smart course. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so narrowly defined. I mean, really in mathematics, I would say it's defined by speed, precision and accuracy, um, and doing well on standardized tests. Mm -hmm. Getting the right and, answer. Right. Yeah. And memorization. We can add memorization to that. Right. And those are such narrow ways of thinking. Um, instead of thinking about, can you creatively think about this problem. Can you solve it in a completely different way? Um, can you connect the way that you solved it to someone else's strategy? Can you extend your solution to think about, okay, well, this was a problem for one person's family. Let's think about this for a whole community. Can you make the extension? Um, and, and I think that students have to authentically feel successful. Mm. Right. I don't think that we can tell just tell students, you know, our opinion, like, I think you're really brilliant. I think you're talented in mathematics. I think that students have to feel that within themselves. 
And as teachers, we have to create opportunities where the math is open-ended, it's multidimensional. There's different ways to show that you understand things. I mean, one of the things that I used to do, so in addition to the performance-based assessments that we did, that were that were actually like dissertation style presentations. They were hour and a half long presentations that they did in every subject area. Mm. So they did one in math, science, English, social studies, and they did an autobiography as well. Mm. Um, And um, because I really valued group work, right? That was one of the strategies that I mentioned is that I would have students do these round table presentations and I would take notes on their team working skills. And so, you know, someone would say, oh, what do you think? Oh, how did you get that? Oh, let me help you. Let's, oh, let's see how our two strategies work together. Let's come up with one strategy together. And I wanted to give kids credit, you know, like for their grade, for, for their group working skills. Right. And so that was a different dimension that I really wanted to bring into my classroom. Yeah. You know, it's funny because as you're describing this, these are high school kids. But I'm thinking of my life in a preschool because preschool kids are not afraid of math. Mm-hmm. Preschool kids are exploring the world. They're the most natural scientists in the world. I mean, they, you know, they'll literally do the craziest things. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of suddenly of this, these twins that I had in New York City and they were three years old and they would go to the snack table and they'd pour the juice out of the little pitcher and then move the glass in to catch the, the juice. And, and it was the craziest thing. And they were studying, how does this all work? And then they learned that, you know, the floor was sticky when you've spilled apple juice on it, all kinds of things. They wow. were fearless, fearless. And it's true of math as well. They were building with blocks. They were using all kinds of things. And then somehow when they got the first grade and second grade and third grade, they were told things like, don't count on your fingers, uh, which always struck me as one of the weirdest instructions in math, right? Do the problem, but don't, why wouldn't you count on your fingers? We were using Cuisinier rods in preschool. Let's count on our fingers, right? Right, right. So anyway, it, it just strikes me that the natural scientist, the natural, and in a, in a way you're re- reinscribing that natural mathematician, that natural scientist, with high school kids who kind of been disempowered. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. Right. And I mean, I would say it takes multiple years, right? Because if students have been in this oppressive mathematics instruction for K through, I mean, okay. And I don't, I guess I don't know how to say this without, I, I, I very much identify as a teacher and I never want a teacher bash. Right. Right. So, I mean, it's the system. It's not individual right, teachers. Right, it, right. It's, it's the drive of standardized tests. It's a pedagogy that we assume is based on, on an idea of learning that's very much um, transactional and not kind of organic. So I agree with you. I, I'm a, a big fan of teachers, and I think they're, they're doing God's work. But I think it's worth examining this pedagogical problem because I think it's so, so pervasive. You know. Yeah. And, and my first year that I taught in New York, um, I actually moved to New York right when 9-11 happened. That was my first year teaching in New York. Um, I looped with my students. So I taught them in their ninth grade year. And I worked so hard to, you know, change the nature of the classroom space. I wanted it to be a place where kids wanted to come, where they felt empowered and had agency and had leadership. And so I looped with them in their 10th grade year. And then actually I taught many of them also in their 12th grade year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was just very lucky in that I taught at a school that was, we had, it was a title one school and we had 400 students. Mm-hmm. So we were very much a small community and we all knew each other. We knew students, families, they had our cell phone numbers. We they called us by our first names, right? And so I think that all of those pieces also helped contribute to math teaching, right? Because I had such strong personal relationships with students. We had a strong advisory program. 
my principal, Luis Delgado, recently passed, um, you know, rest in power to him. And I just really hope that I, I'm carrying the torch for his way of, of really teaching with your heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm so interested. The more you talk, the more I'm interested in kind of the ways in which the kind of teaching you're describing is an attempt to take a, a, a system that's taught kids to be passive, deferential, disempowered, and kind of reinscribe a sense that this is natural. I mean, math is one way of looking at the world, and it's not, it's not like it's um, God-given, but it's there, and we can find it, and we can create it. And, and it sounds like the, a lot of your work is really, I don't know, rekindling a sense of not only wonder, but also power. That, that I'm a powerful person in the world and that knowing how to do these things makes me less deferential, less passive, less oppressed and more able to be the pilot of, of this ship, you know? Right. And, and really one of the reasons that I was able to do that and I was able to bring my kids to protests and rallies was because of my principal. And he really believed that empowering teachers would allow us to empower kids. You know, I never felt surveilled. I never felt like I had to, you know, have the aim on the board or I had to turn my curricular materials into him. He, he trusted us in our pedagogy. But what about the teacher who doesn't either have the collective support you had or that principle? I mean, what does that teacher do? That's a really good question. I mean, I... Yeah, I think I, that's an important one for all of us. I mean, yeah, you, you were very fortunate and you, you ran with it and you took it somewhere. But I think that we also have to wonder and worry. And I guess, yeah, I'd be interested. How does one who doesn't have all those supports, how does that person function in a social justice way? Well, I really build off of the work of Rochelle Gutierrez and thinking about creative insubordination. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that a teacher might do is close their classroom door and do what they know is best for kids. And we know a lot of teachers who do this, right? Who don't necessarily follow district punitive measures, um, you know, and they build relationships with kids. I think there are also, I don't want to say small strategic things, but there are strategic things that teachers can do in their schools in terms of thinking about what curriculum they want their school or their district to adapt, right? Is it going to be a traditional text that's the way that, you know, many people then have math phobia, or is it going to be a text that intends for us to investigate together. Um, I mean, I think about some of the things that I try to do in my own setting, right? I, um, I really wanted my students, my pre-service teachers to have a voice in the program that they're in. And so I suggested to my colleagues, you know, why don't we give an open-ended survey in the middle of the semester or in the middle of the year excuse me, at the end of the semester and read the responses and respond to them instead of doing it only at the end of the school year, mm. right? Um, and so I think that those, you know, I, I guess they are maybe, <laughs> they're not like large moves. Um, yeah, but, but, but they are something and they point in a direction that people can run with. I mean, I mean, step by step, uh, you know, I have a friend who wrote a book called Rinky Dink Revolution, and it was about mm -hmm. rinky dink things that one can do step by step, um, not while waiting for the revolution, but while building the, 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 the utopia we imagine as best you can in the here and now. The, the one thing I would say, you know, the more I thought, and you raised the question of, uh, you know, creative insubordination, which has been a theme of mine my whole teaching life. Um, <laughs> when I was first teaching uh, preschool and, and I was in a public school building and I was, um, I was in the, you know, just the first 15 minutes and um, somebody came over the PA for the third time 
to say that a teacher left the headlights on in the parking lot. And at lunchtime, I got up and unscrewed the PA and cut the wires and then put it back together and reported it broken. And it took them five years to fix it. So that's, <laughs> and of course, I'm not advocating destroying school property, but, but I think that those are the kind of things you have to think about because if you're focused on the children and not on anything else, I think that's important. But the other thing I would say, and it's, it's embedded in what you said, is that the first thing you do when you say, I'm just one person, what can I do? Is the first thing you do is you look for a second person and a third person. So that's both the kids are your natural ally. The parents are another ally that especially high school teachers don't reach out to in ways that they might. Um, and then the other is that teacher around the corner who, you know, is also struggling and trying her best to, to work in a system that's not supportive. And, and so it's finding two people, three people, and then five people that really can disrupt and change and humanize what is a dehumanizing situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is exactly what I did. I, I asked a colleague, <laughs> I have this idea, would you be willing to have it come from the both of us? Let's get on the agenda for the next meeting um, to be able to, to make those. I like this. I'm going to um, get this book. This rinky-dink revolution. Yeah, it's by Howard Waitzkin, and he he's a great guy. He's a medical doctor, but he he's not he's not writing about teaching. He's writing about how we make a revolution in our lives, and and I think it's a it's a really worthwhile book. One of the one of the things we do in this podcast is we have a rolling, ongoing uh, reading autobiography called My Book of Books. And I recommend Ricky Dink Revolutions for everybody. I think it's a simple little book in which he talks about ways that we can solve the housing problem, solve the food problem, solve the community problems, um, bit by bit, step by step. And he's been, he's now in his 70s, I think, but he's never play, paid uh, war taxes his whole life. And he's never been arrested. And he's never been, you know, he always says to the government, Here's what I think I owe you, and then he pays that, and and they, and they uh, have let him alone for the most part. Kind of an interesting guy. Yeah, I mean it's so important, right? Because I think that I always believe that I'm empowered. Right. Right. I I don't think that I ever just think like, oh gosh, this is, this is a horrible context, you know, and we don't have a voice, and my students don't have a voice. Um, and I think that it's it's you just can never give up that hope, right? Especially as a teacher. Right. Well, we're we're a pro profession based on hope, absolutely. Right. But but I think one of the things that happens is the language hurts us, and the language disempowers us. And I'm interested uh, because you are a, a leading kind of math educator in the social justice world for sure. But I think that that a lot of the language. Um, for example, what we've been talking about the ways in which objectivity, it's objective, it's the, it's the gold standard and so on, and it's not open to interpretation. All that stuff disempowers us. I worry, I, I had a student this year actually, we, in the recent election in Chicago, um, we voted uh, in, a, in a referendum, the people of Illinois voted not to tax the rich. Uh, so I was very bummed out because we had a wonderful, wow. wonderful, thing backed by many, many important political figures. Um, and we lost it by a very thin margin. But the idea was that the wealthy, we should not have a flat tax in Illinois. We should have a graduated income tax so that the secretary of the billionaire doesn't sit, pay the same rate as the billionaire. It seems so logical to me. But when the vote came in, one of my students said, well, now how do you reconcile the fact that you believe in letting the people decide, you believe in democracy and yet now they've decided and you you turn out to be wrong and you know and and I, I said to her we had a long conversation about it and she didn't agree but I did argue back to her that democracy and polling aren't the same thing that democracy is a verb it's in motion it's not something that you make a decision so if you polled the American people about slavery in 18 you know 30 it would have polled as okay you know but but that doesn't make it okay. So, so I worry that we, in the, you know, the ways in which math has crept into our lives, into the lives of a group of 
you know, I would say disempowered or, or um, you know, deferential citizens, we begin to look at polling as if that's democracy. We begin to look at um, we begin to look at algorithms as if they are free of context. That freaks me out, also, right? Yeah, and I think about that a lot as a pre-service teacher educator, right? When I work with my students, because pre-service math teachers haven't had the opportunity to take courses where they learn about systemic oppression, to learn about the history of redlining, the eugenics movement, Jim Crow, voter disenfranchisement. I mean, there are just so many things that they haven't had the opportunity to learn. And so in my teaching, I really try to infuse those ideas. I mean, it's kind of a lot because I'm kind of trying to pack in a lot of things into the curriculum. And this year, luckily, I'm actually teaching three courses <laughs> of the same students. And so it's great because I get to explore all of these ideas with them. And they've never, you know, they've never heard these things. I mean, I had them watch 13th and they said, oh, my gosh, I never knew that this they they never knew about the prison industrial complex. They didn't understand that money was being made. Um, I mean, it's just this, this um, I think, ripe opportunity, you know, to really work with pre-service math teachers. Who, well, how did you sneak 13th into the math curriculum? Explain that to me. I mean, I, I don't feel like I snuck it in. To me, it was, yeah, to me, okay. it, was, it was essential for them to understand. Um, I mean, I had them watch a part of the series, Race, the Power of an Illusion, because, you know, they didn't understand the, the history of the eugenics movement to standardize testing. Mm. Okay, right. so I see. I, right. I get the like, connection, right? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't understand redlining, so they didn't understand... I think that for some students, they believe in the myth of meritocracy. And so they just think, well, my family has this home because they've worked hard and this other family of people of color don't because they haven't worked as hard. Mm -hmm. Right. Not that not that they would say that out loud. Well, I think it's important to get them to say it out loud. I mean, that's part of why. On this podcast, we have a lot of uh, we do a lot of free writes and a lot of homework where we ask very basic questions. Are some people more worthy than others? You know, I mean, that's a you might as well face it. You know, if you think so. So I do that mm -hmm. a lot in my teaching. I, I I try to get folks to disconnect from their common sense, and and that's one way to do it. But but what you're pointing to I, it brings me to another question: Is math teaching political? Oh, sounds like I mean, it is yes. for you. Is it yes. always political? All teaching, all teaching is political. I mean, if we if we just teach the so-called standards or what people consider apolitical is political in and of itself because that just furthers the status quo and social reproduction. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. So all you're saying all teaching is political, and of course that means math teaching is political, even though from the outside, people would say, come on, two plus two is four. There's nothing political about that. That is just straightforward. How do you answer that? There was actually a, um, a Twitter storm about this. Um, there's a biostatistics PhD student, Kareem Carr at Harvard, who tweeted about you know, two plus two could equal five. It depends on the meaning. Two plus two could be you put together um, two dogs, I don't know, two female dogs, two male dogs, and then there's, oh no, that wouldn't work though, because that wouldn't equal five, because they have litters. <laughs> okay, let's think of humans, right? And then there's one more person, like two plus two could actually equal five, you know, and he talks, he in his tweet, he talks about like the context of, um, you know, that the numbers can mean different things. Uh, and um, he was attacked, you know, by many um, people who, who want to hold on to the status quo. And want to say that it is objective, but, but I want you to still say more about that because I want to understand how I can, you know, as a lay person, how can I argue with people who say, yeah, but it's just objective. I'm thinking partly 
a course about algorithms because I don't think algorithms, I can point to examples. Let me give you one example. You know that my youngest son is the district attorney of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So he's spent the last five years campaigning against cash bail. And he's been remarkably successful across the country at, at getting people to see that cash bail is a form of uh, economic you know, enslavement. And, and that's really important. But so what did they do in California? They did away with cash bail and they created an algorithm. The algorithm is exactly like, in my mind at least, it's exactly like the afterlife of slavery, where they said, we can tell if somebody's about to commit a crime by, <gasps> yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's like a risk assessment. Yeah, so it's a risk assessment algorithm and it's done by some very smart people from, from, from some very fine institutions with some very great credentials. And what does it end up doing? It ends up keeping poor people locked up in county jail, awaiting trial. They don't have to make cash bail, but they flunked the algorithm. So they're still locked up. That to me is exactly the misuse of math and the ways in which we can be, those of us who feel dumb in math or disempowered and unable to question the smart people, um, kind of screwed, you know? Um, so I, I, I'm just thinking about the, the ways, that's an example to me of um, math is not objective. You know, that's, not a, that's a very socially loaded, historically loaded um, concept that there's an algorithm of risk, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that in math, you know, we always state our assumptions, right? So we're saying, we assume this, we assume this, this is given, right? And when that part is unclear, right? How are, how are these data and statistics being calculated? Is there a whole subset of people that are being left out in order for numbers to get bumped up or bumped down a certain way? Um, I mean, the data that I, I used, I looked at the World Health Organization data, you know, to talk about these COVID statistics. Um, and that data, I mean, I'm sure that there are many people missing from the number of COVID cases who people who had it and, you know, just never got tested or had it in mild case or had it and were asymptomatic. Um, and so, yeah, when we have no idea what those assumptions are, then we don't, yeah, we can have the wool pulled over our eyes. Yeah, and I think that's, I think it happens all the time. And I, and I worry that in the modern world where we get snowed by things like polling numbers and algorithms and statistics, that if you're not smart about how to fight back against it, um, you know, one of the things that pops into my mind, because this is another one that drives me crazy as a teacher, is, you know, there was this article in the New Yorker many, many years ago about the Steinway piano. And um, I don't know if you ever saw it, but I, I should send it to you. You would love it. It's, it's a profile of how a Steinway piano is made. And they're at the workshop where Steinways are made up in New England. And one of the foremen says, well, you have to understand each Steinway is different. Each is specific. It depends on the wood and what part of the forest it grew in and what the temperature was and what the humidity was. Each Steinway is unique. It has 10,000 unique parts. And you stop and you say, yeah, and a three-year-old has billions of, of, of brain cells, right? Mm -hmm. And billions upon billions. And, and somehow every three-year-old is the same or every third grader is the same, but each Steinway is unique. <laughs> that kind of, you know, it's that kind of thing where numbers get, you know, get to, I don't know, I want to fight back with numbers, I guess. You know. Yeah. Anyway, um, let me ask you a couple more things real quick, because I know we're running on, uh, we're running longer than I promised. Um, uh, I, so you're saying that all teaching and math teaching is political. Is math teaching racist? Is math teaching racist? Is it white supremacist? Um, I mean, math teaching that furthers the goals of imperialist, ableist, white supremacist, cis heteropatriarchy. Um, and, and this is why I, I think that critical consciousness is so important, right? Because if you don't know 
the history of standardized testing, if you don't know, if you don't question, you know, who are the people who made up these standards? Who are the people who wrote this text textbook? Um, and you just follow the rules, right? You know, I think about those psych studies that, you know, the psych studies about, um, they just tell you like, press the button and the person on the other side of the wall is screaming and then they keep saying like, oh, turn it up, press the button again. And people just follow authority. And, the, and then on the other side, the person, they're not even making any noise anymore and you assume that they are unconscious or not alive, right? And, <laughs> and I just think that, um, yeah, just following authority I think is so problematic. And so as, as a teacher, I think it becomes important to be able to allow kids to question you, you know? And I think that becomes tricky for teachers because we believe in critical pedagogy and, and then our kids become so empowered that they don't want to, <laughs> you know, like, let's change the classroom norms. It's like, oh, but I thought we decided this together. <laughs> hey, this is Malik. Uh, unfortunately, our interview between Bill and Dr. Coca was cut off, so we have to leave it there, but it was a great conversation. I used to be a teacher's assistant in an eighth grade math classroom, so I learned a lot about what I could have done to make that experience better for those students. Uh, but we appreciate you, Dr. Coca, for coming on Under the Tree, and thank you for listening. <laughs> Before we say goodbye today, I have a homework assignment. Whether math or literature, science or art, and whether in preschool or graduate school, the most important lessons we ever teach our students are these. First, you're a human being of incalculable value. That means your worth and value can never be adequately counted. It can't be quantified once and for all, and the numbers can never tell the whole story, even though we spend untold time and resources trying to do exactly that, measuring and ranking the value of students. But it's a fool's errand, misguided and destructive. Second, you're an unruly spark of meaning-making energy, and you have every right to be here. You're a work in progress, and you're making your wobbly way through a living, cascading history in the making, and what you do or don't do will make a difference. And finally, you need no one's permission to interrogate your community or the whole wide world. For homework, think about these questions. As a student, when were you told explicitly or implicitly that you are a human being of incalculable value or that you're an unruly spark of meaning-making energy or that you need no one's permission to interrogate your world? Try to excavate those moments in that experience and let us know. Thanks to our friends from the podcast Ergo, that's spelled A-I-R-G-O, and to Malik Alim, esteemed producer, engineer, and partner in crime. Under the Tree is written and hosted by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Alim. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morella. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep Keep rising and make your life a work of art with joy in my heart and freedom in my mind until next time.